Our speaker tonight is New York Times best-selling author, Nathaniel Philbrick. Born in Boston, Philbrick has earned his bachelor's degree in English at Brown University and his master's degree in American literature at Duke University. In 2000, he published the New York Times bestseller, In the Heart of the Sea, winner of the National Book Award for Nonfiction. To follow, he wrote The Sea of Glory, winner of the Theodore and Franklin D. Roosevelt Naval History Prize. In 2007, the Mayflower was published and it was the finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in History. The Last Stand was named a New York Times notable book and Why, Why Read Moby Dick was named in the 2012 Listen List for Outstanding Audiobook. Bunker Hill was awarded the 2013 New England Award for Nonfiction. Most of us all are very familiar with Philbrick's many works and awards. This evening, Philbrick's most recent book, Valiant Ambition, is an account of the middle years of the American Revolution and the relationship between George Washington and Benedict Arnold. This evening, Philbrook will argue that after four years of war, America was forced to realize that the real threat to its liberties was not from within, excuse me, was not from without, but from within. Please join me in welcoming Nathaniel Philbrook. Well, it's great to be here, over there in the green room, presided over by Sir Isaac, Admiral Sir Isaac Coffin, uh, who was a British admiral. Coffins were big in Nantucket, and he uh, donated a school called the Coffin School, uh, in which I, uh, the Egan Maritime Institute, of which I was a founder, uh, was for many years. And so it's great to have a little bit of uh, Coffin slash Nantucket here in Boston. Well, Valiant Ambition began for me uh, 25 years ago. Uh, 30 years ago, I moved to Nantucket with my wife and two children. And in school, I was an English major. And Moby Dick was my personal Bible. And I was very excited about moving to the island that was the port of the Pequod. It was kind of a letdown a few years later to realize that Melville had never visited Nantucket when he wrote that masterpiece. But such is the power of literary imagination. I nonetheless became fascinated with the history of Nantucket. You know, how did it become the whaling capital of the world? And it was while reading uh, a book about Nantucket in the 18th century, uh, St. Jean de Crevecourt's Letters from an American Farmer. It's one of the seminal books about America. Uh, Crevecourt was a petty nobility in France, fought in the French and Indian War on the side of France, but after that war ended up uh, in New York eventually married an American woman and settled along the, the Hudson River and was absolutely infatuated with America. This was a society that was unlike anything in Europe where people from all different nationalities, economic backgrounds could come and make a go of it. Uh, he, he famously asks in the first letter of letters from an American farmer, what is this American, this new man? Now, Crevecourt traveled widely throughout America, up and down the Mississippi. He came, went to Nantucket several times, and three of the 12 letters are about Nantucket. That's why I was reading it. But in the last letter, chapter 12, everything changes. 
His utopia has been destroyed by the outbreak of the American Revolution. The zealot patriots, under the guise of the Committee of Safety, move into town and begin to question every landowner as to their loyalties. And Crevecourt says, you know, wait, this is the freest, most prosperous society on earth. Why are we having a revolution? I'm not sure what I believe in this. Eventually, he, along with many of his friends, are hounded out of town. He eventually, along with his older son, ends up back in France, where he tries to put together his new life. And Letters from an American Farmer is published in England on his way back to France. And this was a, 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 a version of the American Revolution I had knew nothing about growing up. The story I, I, I was told was it was a group of ragtag farmer militiamen who banded together and um, improbably defeated the mightiest military power on earth and thereby threw off the shackles of British tyranny. But what Crevcourt was describing, of Crevcourt of course means broken heart, um, uh, what Crevcourt was describing was a country that was much more interested in fighting each other former neighbors than fighting the British. And uh, so you know, I, I realized I needed to explore this. And it was after I finished my last book, uh, Bunker Hill, that uh, I also knew I needed to continue on in the revolution. I was, Washington uh, comes in relatively late uh, in Bunker Hill. After every, the, the great battle of Bunker Hill, he arrives for the siege of Boston. And this was a Washington that I had never encountered, you know, we grow up with Washington on the one dollar bill, the staid pragmatist, the rock upon which this country is founded. And Washington in the beginning of the revolution is not like that at all. He's in his 40s, he's fiery by temperament, very aggressive. He wants to attack the British in Boston. And even though his army does not have sufficient supplies of, of, of gunpowder, he wants to attack destroy, burn Boston if, and if necessary, and end this thing. It's a, a proposal that's so risky that his council of war repeatedly rejects it as, as you know, you're going to destroy us before you're going to destroy the British. So I knew I needed to find out what happened to Washington in those middle years, but how, how to get at uh, what Crevcourt described as I'm following the indispensable man, Washington. Enter my mother. Marianne Dennis Philbrick. My mother was something of a renegade. For one thing, she smoked a pipe. And I have to say, growing up in the 60s in Pittsburgh, when my parents lit up in a restaurant after dinner, it was quite, quite the experience. And uh, my, my mom had no trouble telling people exactly what she believed, especially if she knew they didn't agree with her. And she just thought Benedict Arnold was terrific. And, and I'd say, what the heck are you talking about? If someone calls anyone a Benedict Arnold, it's, it's evil, personified. Uh, you know, what are you, what are you getting at? And she said, no, no, it's much more complicated story than that. He was our best general at the beginning of the war. He had his reasons. Well, I am here before you tonight to say that, you know, mom had it right, pretty much. <laughs> and, um, and, and uh, the Valiant Ambition begins in the summer of 1776. Washington, despite the fact that he doesn't attack the British in Boston, has succeeded in dislodging them from the city, largely because uh, uh, Henry Knox, the former bookseller, uh, has 
brought those cannons from Fort Ticonderoga down to Dorchester Heights, and William Howe has no alternative but to leave the city. But now, in the summer of 1776, the empire has struck back with a vengeance. In the course of several weeks in, in the summer, 400 British vessels gather in New York Harbor, uh, assembling along the west shore of Staten Island. 40,000 soldiers and sailors are in this floating city. Uh, that's more people than in Philadelphia, the largest urban center in North America. Washington is dug in in New York in the high ground in, in Brooklyn. The British Army, because it has the Navy, which is commanded by William Howe's older brother, Admiral Richard Howe, have all infinite flexibility. He can move around like chess pieces uh, around water surrounded New York while Washington, with his Continental Army, does not have this mobility. He has never led an army, a large army in battle with another large army. No one in America has. It does not go well for Washington in the Battle of Long Island. He is completely outgeneraled by William Howe, who through a daring flanking maneuver has the opportunity to destroy Washington's army. He refrains uh, for uh, various reasons, providing Washington with the opportunity to, at night, to retreat across the East River, but Washington quickly has to then retreat from New York and ultimately Manhattan Island, and by November of 1776, his army is retreating across the breadth of New Jersey, where it will ultimately end up on the Pennsylvania side of the Delaware. America is in a in desperate straits, because not only is there a large invasionary force now with a toehold in New York, there is another force coming down from Canada. Hudson River is just the beginning of a quarter of water that goes up past Albany, where the Hudson is, is navigable, a little jog to the right, and there is Lake Champlain, a, a lake with, with, which extends much like a river more than 100 miles into Canada. And this was before multi-lane highways. This was before there were any significant roads of any sort up there in the northern portions of America. And to transport an army or really anyone, you needed water. And, uh, and if Britain should get command of this corridor of water, they would be in a position to alienate the New England states from the rest of the country, and the war would be over. There's this big invasionary force has built its own armada uh, to tackle the, the, the job of sailing down Lake Champlain and taking Fort Ticonderoga at its southern end. They've built, in six weeks, the British Navy has built a, a, a three-masted square-rigged ship equipped with 18 cannons, the kind of vessel you see in the open ocean. And there it is being assembled in the upper reaches of Lake Champlain. They have two cannon-equipped schooners, uh, thousands of soldiers, a large native contingent, more than 20 British gunboats, and they're all headed towards Fort Ticonderoga. There is only one person between that that, that fleet and the end of um, the American at war effort in 1776 and it's Benedict Arnold. All that summer he has been in the southern end of Lake Champlain putting together America's own navy. By this time he's already a legend. Uh, at the beginning of the war 
he takes Fort Ticonderoga along with Ethan Allen, realizing that this corridor of water is absolutely essential to the security of the new nation. Washington, who is ensconced in the, the, the Boston siege, then sends Arnold on an impossible overland journey up the Penobscot River into the interior of Maine. I followed Arnold along this route towards what is, his destination was Quebec, there's still nothing up there in Maine. If there is, it's called Arnold. And um, he loses a third of his army to death and desertion. They stagger out of the wilderness, and he's made it to, to Quebec, a city that's ripe for the plucking. He's, you know, it's such an extraordinary, and this is in fall uh, with snow and it's freezing. It's such an extraordinary adventure. He's known as the American Hannibal. Uh, uh, and by now he, here he is on Lake Champlain. Arnold was passionate, fiery, extraordinarily charismatic, uh, an athlete with incredible endurance. He was also a very good uh, sail, sailor. Uh, he had been a, a, uh, a, a merchant uh, out of New Haven, uh, originally apprenticed as an apothecary, and, and he was using those skills and building this fleet and he, his was the job to try to prevent the British from taking Fort Ticonderoga. If he could do this, America would at least have another year in this, in this war. And, he had, and he, there was no one better at sizing up the strengths and weaknesses of, of an opposing army. And what he decides to do is a few miles below Plattsburgh, New York, on Lake Champlain, on the west shore of the lake, is Valcour Island. He takes his fleet of 15 vessels, lines them up along the mouth of that tiny bay, and they're hidden inside by the island. And he knows that it's going to be a northerly breeze that brings the British down the lake. Sure enough, in early October, it's a strong northerly, and here comes the Armada with that great big ship, the Inflexible on its way down. Arnold waits until they sail past Valcour Island, basically sticks out his head and waves, here I am. They say, all right, we've got him. He's trapped in that bay. Little do they know that they are the ones sailing into the trap. Because what Arnold has done is he's negated the, the, the greatest asset the British have, that great big three-masted square rigged vessel. Because now they have to sail against the wind to get at the Americans. And a, and a square rigged ship cannot sail with any effectiveness against the wind. All that, that day, the inflexible and even the schooners are really not a part of the battle. It's only those gunboats with oars that can row up. They establish a line 200 yards below the Americans, and for the next eight hours, they fire at one another with cannons, with Arnold at the bow of his vessel in the middle of the American line, blasting away at one another. One of the gunbo British gunboats is literally blown out of the water. A, a, an American gondola, and this, these, were, these were basically a, a floating platform for cannons with a mast and, and some oars. One of them is sunk by a British cannonball that uh, would later be found embedded in the timbers of its bow. Uh, in the 1930s, it would be brought up and is now at, on exhibit at the American Museum of History at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Night comes. Arnold has somehow battled the British to a draw. But what to do? You know, they're still standing. They've endured all sorts of, of casualties, but they're still there. 
The British are very confident that now they have Arnold trapped in Valcor Bay. It's a very dark night, a mist is over the waters, and Arnold's officers are anxious about what they're going to do. They propose that they do what seems like the sensible thing. Try sailing to the north, work their way around the island and sneak out past the British. Arnold had a swashbuckling air about him. If there, was, if, if there was opportunity to take a risk that would burnish his reputation as a risk taker, he'd always go for it. And he said, nope. We're not going to do that. We're going to sail through the British fleet, and this is how we're going to do it. It's a dark night. One of the um, British American ships is, was bur burned by the British, and that, those fires are, are leaping up uh, at the southern tip of Valcour Island, making it hard to see in the darkness. And they're all deaf because they've been shooting cannons for eight hours. He says, there's enough room between the innermost British ship and the trees of the shoreline that we can sneak through one vessel at a time. We'll, we'll go out one at a time with lanterns on the stern so the vessel behind can see where they are and we're gonna sail through and to safety. And sure enough, they do it. Morning comes. Once the mist clears from Valcor Bay, British General Carleton is apoplectic. The, the, the bay is empty and the Americans are seven miles to the south, sailing towards Valcour Island. A, a race, uh, and what I really enjoyed about this book, I grew up sa uh, learning to sail on Lake Champlain, so this was a real return to my roots. And uh, Arnold would, would experience something I experienced several times while racing sailboats on Lake Champlain. The winds are very fickle, the winds by this time were out of the south, they die to nothing while a a breeze comes from the north, bringing the British down on the Americans. They're off what's known as Split Rock. Arnold, you know, great names. Arnold says to the rest of the fleet, go to Ticonderoga, I'll make a stand here. Arnold uh, f ends up fighting off that great big warship, the two schooners. He's, he's, they're blasting away at one another for several hours. His ship is so riddled with musket and bullet and cannonball holes, he's now sinking. He sees that the wind is shifted to the east, he's got oars, the others don't, and they row for shore on the Vermont shore. They drive the ship onto, the, onto what's now known as Arnold Bay. The men take to the high ground overlooking their ship, and with the flag bravely waving, he blows it to smithereens. At 4 a.m. the next morning, Arnold and his men stagger into Fort Ticonderoga, and as General Horatio Gates, his commander, will write to General Philip Schuyler, no one has had more hairbreadth escapes than Benedict Arnold. The British are saying, what the heck was that? <laughs> they make their way down to Fort Ticonderoga. Uh, they look at the calendar. It's getting close to November when Lake Champlain starts to freeze. Maybe we should delay this till next year. And that's what they eventually decide to do. Arnold has done it. He has saved America. The British return to Canada, and he has also set up what will be in a year the Battle of Saratoga, the great victory that will ultimately contribute to France deciding to come into the war on the side of America. And so Valiant Ambition begins with Washington, the man destined to be the one person who can hold this country together at his lowest, and Arnold, the man destined to determine that it his, it's his fate to tear this country apart at his highest. 
and watches what happens over the course of the next four years as Arnold becomes increasingly embittered and in the September of 1780 decides that it's time to, he's by this time taken command of West Point and that it's in America's best interests and his best interests to turn that fortress over to the British. Now you'd think Washington had enough to contend with with fighting the British, but more often than not, his own officers and his own government were as much a problem as, as the British Army. You know, during this retreat across New Jersey in the winter of 17, in the fall of 1776, it's November, things are at their lowest ebb. Uh, a, a, uh, the British are, are playing with him the way a cat does a mouse when correspondence comes to headquarters addressed to his adjutant general, Joseph Reed. Reed, uh, a lawyer from Pennsylvania, is the man upon whom Washington trusts the most at this po point. And the correspondence is addressed to him. Reed is not in headquarters, so Washington, as usual, opens the letter and, and realizes that his adjutant general has been in correspondence with the second-ranking officer in the American Army, General Charles Lee, complaining about Washington's indecisiveness and suggesting that come winter, Lee go south and reform a new army. Washington realizes that Lee, uh, that Joseph Reed has been basically conniving behind his back. This is where I began to realize that while Washington had his skills as a general, he was a true genius as a politician. What does he do? He reseals the letter, <laughs> writes in a comp short accompanying note to Joseph Reed. While you were away from headquarters, this note, this letter arrived for you. Assuming it was official business, I opened it as usual, realizing it was something else. My apologies. He sends that, and that's all he says. He leaves Reed to twist in the icy emptiness of his withheld wrath. Okay. Trenton and Princeton, the greatest comebacks of all time. Washington succeeds in ch and at this late terrible time succeeds in, in turning around the momentum of the war. But it doesn't look like this is going to happen. You know, it's, he's on the banks of the Delaware, and he's hoping that this desperate attempt to take Trenton will be successful, but it's not looking good. By this time, Horatio Gates and Arnold have come down from uh, Fort Ticonderoga because the British have gone on to, to Canada, along with 500 soldiers who are very who are added to Washington's army. Arnold is sent to Rhode Island. The British have taken Newport, and it's Arnold's job to try to get them out of, out of that essential port. And Washington is hopeful that Horatio Gates will accompany him on this desperate attempt to take Trenton. But Gates says, you know, I'm not feeling too well. I think I'd better go to Philadelphia for medical attention. The night before, the night Washington is about to cross the Delaware, it's terrible weather. Uh, it's blowing what one soldier describes as a hurricane, and yet it's raining, sleeting, and then snowing, huge chunks of ice coming down the Delaware. It's really not looking good. When Washington receives correspondence from Horatio Gates and learns that uh, Gates, even though he doesn't feel that well, has decided that he's going to uh, travel from Philadelphia all the way down to Baltimore. What's happened is Charles Lee, that second-ranking officer in the American Army, has been captured by the British, meaning that Horatio Gates is is moving up. 
And, um, and if Washington should, uh, his project uh, in taking the Trenton should miscarry, uh, Gates, who is going down to Baltimore because the Continental Congress, fearful that the British will cross the Delaware and take Philadelphia, have moved operations to Maryland, Gates will be perfectly positioned if Washington fails to become the new commander of the American army. This is what, what was what Washington is having to deal with. And you'd think that the, the, the great victory at Trenton and then Princeton would up his stock with uh, his own government. But, you know, it was, it's complicated because the Continental Congress uh, had a very legitimate fear of its own military. In every other revolution in which a republic was the intended result, the American uh, milita the, the military in the chaos that followed the revolution would co-opt the civil government because it just wasn't a functioning. Uh, Caesar would do it in Rome. Cromwell had done it at, uh, during the, the English Revolution. Napoleon would do it in the aftermath of the French Revolution. And so the government had a, a, you know, a, a, a suspicion of a standing army. And fearful that Washington, through his great successes at Trenton and Princeton, was becoming that, that a person whose stature was dangerously monarchical. Washington did not have, uh, you know, had, had a very tight leash placed upon him by the government. And, it, you know, but Washington, a man of great patience and who always kept the long view, realized that if America was going to be true to her ideals, uh, this is how it had to be. He had to be supervised by a body that essentially did not understand how to conduct a war. The Continental Congress uh, had had the power to appoint Washington's major generals. And in the winter of 1777, the top-ranking brigadier general with the best record was Benedict Arnold. Arnold, after you know, everything that had happened, particularly at Valcour Bay, was clearly he was up for promotion. But Congress had instituted a quota system whereby each state got two major generals. And Arnold's home state of Connecticut already had two major generals. So this meant that Arnold, with the best record, would be overlooked for promotion, and five brigadier generals who ranked below him would be elevated past him to major general. He was not happy about this. Washington was not happy about this. Washington had a deep understanding and sympathy for Arnold's plight. Writes him immediately, I'm going to do everything I can to figure out what is going on here and to try to right the situation. This happened to other uh, uh, American officers. Uh, uh, John Stark the, uh, from New Hampshire, the great hero of, of Bunker Hill, would be overlooked in a similar way. And he just quit. Uh, he'd go back to New Hampshire and would eventually have his own New Hampshire troops. He just, you know, didn't have any, any, any patience with it. To Arnold's credit, he hung in there, even though he wasn't happy. And yet this begins his questioning of why am I doing this if my own country doesn't seem to have any respect for what I am, what I am doing on its behalf. Let's fast forward to about a year. It's the Battle of Saratoga, the battle set up by Arnold's uh, performance at Valcour Island. British General John, John, Gentleman Johnny uh, Burgoyne has taken Fort Ticonderoga with ease, has crossed the Hudson, is now knocking on Albany's door. If he can do it and combine with the British in New York, it's all over. 
but it's not going well for the British. And it's not the American army that's proving their undoing. It's the American wilderness. The, the, the challenges of maintaining a supply line all the way into Canada are proving impossible. And Burgoyne's army is, is on the verge of starvation. If he doesn't punch through quickly to Albany, they're going to starve to death. Meanwhile, it's looking very good for the Americans. Horatio Gates is the commander, his second in command, Benedict Arnold. Uh, thousands of militiamen from New England are streaming into Saratoga. Soldier, Continental soldiers are coming up from the south, including the Virginian Daniel Morgan and his riflemen. And uh, Gates has, has never led an army, a large army in battle. Uh, is, is basically a talented bureaucrat. Arnold is a fighter, and Gates is fearful that you know, Arnold may steal some of his thunder. And sure enough, in the first Battle of Saratoga, the Battle of Freeman's Farm, it's Arnold's soldiers that deliver a devastating blow to the British. Uh, however, in Gates' official account of the battle, Arnold's name is not mentioned. Uh, Arnold was passionate. Uh, this passion contributed to his spectacular energy on the battlefield, but it got him into trouble when he was dealing not in a, in a war situation. He had a habit of rubbing his fellow officers and politicians the wrong way, and soon he's in a violent argument with Gates, who knows precisely what buttons to push. He knows Arnold quite well by this point, and Arnold is ultimately out of the Northern Army. This does not prevent him, however, from appearing on the battlefield in the second and climactic Battle of Bemis Heights. The, uh, the sun is about to set. The British army has been sent reeling to its lines, and Arnold sees a way to end it. On the British right is an essential redoubt. If he can come through the rear while a large group of American soldiers take the front, they'll have him just where they want him. He sets off on a horse named Warren for Joseph Warren, the great hero, uh, Amer New England hero, uh, up to, through Bunker Hill, and off he goes. Uh, he he uh, appears at the Sally Port, the entrance to the, the British Redoubt, on his horse with a sword up in the air and commands them to surrender. A German soldier raises his musket, fires the musket ball bursts through his, his thigh, fracturing uh, the, his thigh bone into fragments, kills the horse which collapses on top of his injured leg. He's laying there as the Americans take the, the British redoubt. Uh, uh, a young New Hampshire officer, Henry Dearborn, who's been with Arnold since Quebec, comes to his side and says, are you badly hurt? He says, in the left leg, I wish the musket ball had gone through my heart. He's lying there, he's angry, he's in despair. He knows that you know, he may lose his leg and Horatio Gates is going to become the hero of Saratoga. For the next four months, Arnold, who refuses his doctor's request to, to, to cut off his leg, is, is, is in a hospital bed in Albany uh, his left leg in the equivalent of a medieval torture device, a, a uh, fracture box. 
Um, you know, he, he's so immobilized, he can't even write letters. And for Arnold, a man whose physicality was absolutely essential to his very being, this is, a, this is not only a physical but a psychic in injury. He tells Lafayette at one point that Horatio Gates is the greatest poltroon of the world. Uh, when he, uh, the leg that emerges from the fracture box will be two inches shorter than the other leg. It will be more than a year before he can walk unassisted, two years before he can ride a horse. And, uh, you know, this messes with Arnold's head. In the meantime, Washington is suffering his own reversals. The British, British General Howe has turned his attention to Philadelphia. And in two battles, the Battle of Brandywine in Germantown, he, he, uh, makes a mockery of, of, of Washington's attempts to, to prevent him from taking Philadelphia. The British take Philadelphia. By this time, and Washington is holed up, in, holed up in Valley Forge in that terrible winter. Horatio Gates, now the hero of Saratoga, makes his way south. And delegates in the Continental Congress say, hey, look, Washington has lost Philadelphia, while Gates is the hero of Saratoga. Is it time to chase, change horses here uh, uh, at, at this terrible point in the revolution? Um, Washington's political skills, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, come to the fore uh, during this winter of 1777 and 78. He emerges from, he's able to snuff out what is known as the Conway Cabal, uh, uh, and, and he emerges from that winter stronger than ever, but not Benedict Arnold. Arnold makes his way to Valley Forge at the end of May, takes the oath of allegiance, uh, his hand upon the Bible held by Henry Knox in the artillery park of Valley Forge. And it's clear this man cannot serve in an active uh, military situation, and Washington feels bad for him. But guess what? France has joined the war on our side, largely because of Saratoga. And uh, this means the British are in the midst of what is now a world war. They need to consolidate their forces. They can't have an army in New York and Philadelphia. And so after just an eight-month occupation of Philadelphia, the British must evacuate that city and return to New York. Philadelphia, after the, the British have left, is, is in, a, in chaos. The, the patriots who left the city during the British occupation are, are very angry with the citizens who remained. Uh, uh, under the British, and there's literally fighting in the street. Since Wa Arnold can't serve uh, on the field, Washington appoints him military commander of Philadelphia. It's, you know, it, it seems to make sense, but you know, you needed a general of incredible tact and patience to keep the lid on Philadelphia in, in 1778. Uh, Arnold was not like that. Uh, his only mode he knew was attack, and soon he was embroiled in the passionate controversies that were seething through this city. Phila Pennsylvania had the most radical constitution of America. Uh, there was no executive branch. The Pennsylvania legislature ruled, and it, it was the, the majority ruled. There was no checks and balances for the minorities. This, this meant that the uh, the Aristocratic Philadelphians, who had once been the, the leading citizens, were now being actively persecuted by the, the patriots, uh, as were the, the uh, Quakers, who refused to take a loyalty oath. Arnold 
partly because he had aristocratic pretensions, sided with the conservative uh, Philadelphians. While Joseph Reed, remember him? Uh, Washington's adjutant general is now the head of the Philadelphia legislature. And he, he, is, he is pushing for the zealot patriot cause. Uh, prior to taking the position uh, in the legislature, he was the prosecuting attorney who saw two Quakers hanged for uh, uh, supposedly aiding and abetting the British. And, Washington, and Arnold and, and Reed go at it, hammer and tongs. Uh, Arnold, by this point, is completely broke. He's do donated much of his own personal wealth to the cause during the uh, early years in Canada. He needs money. And uh, so he's, he's got some shady business deals going on the side. Uh, Reed's heard about them but has no evidence, but goes after him in a virtual witch hunt. And, and Arnold becomes a lightning rod for uh, a, a, a war that's, a battle that's unfolding between the Pennsylvania legislature and the national government's legislature, the Continental Congress. You know, we argue about how big should the national government be, what, how much states, power in the states. This was all going along, happening in Philadelphia in the midst of the War of Independence. And Arnold is in the middle of it. He's not happy. He's a a very controversial figure, but hey, he's fallen in love. Arnold is, is uh, 36, a widower with three young boys, uh, and he meets young Peggy Shippen, half his age at 18. Peggy's uh, family uh, uh, is, is from uh, the equivalent of uh, Philadelphia royalty. Uh, in fact, prior to the revolution, her family had royal connections. Now her father is trying to straddle the political fence as best he can. And Peggy had a great time during the, uh, the British occupation of Philadelphia, uh, socializing with the British officers, one Major John Andre. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, made a sketch of Peggy was a beautiful woman. And uh, within a month of her marriage to Arnold, Arnold sends his first feelers to the British to none other than Major John Andre, who becomes the British spy chief. Now, I will not go into the details of the espionage story. That's just a cloak and dagger story that unfolds over the next year, more than a year, as Arnold uh, decides that this, his country is falling apart. Uh, the, the, by 1780, the country has cratered. The French alliance has done nothing to help win the war. Uh, the, the states, the American Revolution began because we didn't want to pay taxes to the British. Now, apparently, the American people do not want to pay to the taxes required to pay for the army to win their own freedom. Washington's army is starving to death. Uh, the question is, if Washington should somehow manage to beat the, the British, will there be a country left to claim victory? Arnold decides uh, that it is in his country's best interest to bring the British back as bloodlessly as possible and restore the freedoms that the Americans enjoyed prior to the American Revolution. However, this does not prevent him from negotiating the absolute highest price for turning over uh, West Point, which is the preeminent fortress in America, to the British. 
and thereby, you know, this supposedly patriotic act in Arnold's uh, perspective is, is ultimately exceedingly reprehensible. There was more than a little narcissist in Benedict Arnold who had that talent to convince himself that was best for him was best for everyone else. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It comes down to a, a midnight meeting between Arnold and Andre on the, the west shore of the Hudson at Haverstraw Bay. Andre has been delivered up the Hudson on the most appropriately named vessel ever, the HMS Vulture. <laughs> Arnold uh, provides Andre with documents essential to the British uh, taking West Point. Andre puts them in the sock inside one of his boots. The next morning at dawn, Unknown to Arnold, an American officer has moved cannons to the end of Teller's Point. They fire on the vulture. The vulture is forced down the river. Andre has no way to get back. Uh, that night he crosses the Hudson at King's Ferry and must make his way through Westchester County to British-occupied New York. Now, Westchester County, at this point in the Revolution, is known as the neutral ground. It's more like a no man's land where no army holds sway between the British in New York and the American army to the north. Packs of gangs, if they're loyalists, they call themselves cowboys. If they're patriots, they call themselves skinners. Literally rape and pillage their former neighbors. Uh, uh, much of Westchester County is, is a wasteland. This is the haunted landscape of Sleepy Hollow, the headless horseman, Rip Van Winkle. And through this landscape, Andre must make his way to New York. It's, uh, it's early morning. He's riding. He's just within miles of making it to, to Kingsbridge and, and, and safety when out of the shadows step three men with muskets, one of them in a Hessian Jaeger, Jaeger jacket. Andre thinks, this is great. He asks, are you from the lower part? Are you from uh, with the British? They say, yes, yes. He says, great, I am a British officer. They tell him to get off his horse. It turns out these are three American militiamen. The one with the Jaeger jacket was just a few days before a prisoner in New York and used that jacket to escape the British across the Hudson, and now he is serving in the American militia. They find those documents in his sock and realize that Andre is a spy. It takes more than a day for the, that it, they, there's, there's no immediate understanding that Arnold is, 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 try, is the one trying to betray uh, his country. And it takes more than a day for information that Andre has been captured to reach Arnold's headquarters, about a mile below West Point on the east shore of the Hudson. By this time, Peggy has joined him with their infant son. And Arnold realizes that if Andre has been captured, they're going to figure this out. And to make matters worse, Washington, along with Lafayette, Hamilton and Knox is due to arrive at his headquarters at any moment. He rushes upstairs to their bedroom and tells Peggy, I'm out of here. He, he uh, runs, he, he, he stumps his way uh, to the dock uh, where they're, they're, his barge is awaiting, leaps onto it, tells the oarsman to head south. He eventually will make his way to the vulture and, and to British-occupied New York. Washington arrives with minutes later, uh, and after a tour of West Point, in which Arnold is, for reasons that no one can explain, not present, Washington 
returns to the headquarters for lunch. Um, and it's then that Hamilton hands him information that makes it clear that his best battlefield general in the early years of the war has attempted to surrender West Point to the British. He turns to Lafayette, the young French officer who has become a surrogate son to him, and says, whom can we trust now? It's a devastating blow to, to Washington. Um, uh, who, yeah, he had a blind spot when it came to Arnold. Arnold, I think, was what Washington could have been from Washington's point of view if he had been 10 years younger and not saddled with the crushing responsibility of command. He could have been the ones getting those victories out on the battlefield. But it was Arnold in the early years of the war, and it was Arnold who had, who had attempted to betray his country. Washington would take this very personally, uh, would um, ultimately Andre would be hanged as a spy. He would uh, a, uh, a s undercover s uh, agent would be sent to New York in an attempt to not assassinate Andre uh, uh, Arnold, but capture him. Uh, that would be foiled by uh, the British decision to send Arnold to Virginia. But for Washington, uh, you know, this was a devastating blow. And then the great and tragic irony of, of Arnold's life, um, you know, he had done as much as anyone save Washington to help his country in the early years of the war, but it's as a traitor that he truly rivets the country with, you know, this great hero has attempted to betray us. Uh, he would be burned in effigy in towns up and down the eastern seaboard, and within a year, of, of this would come the great victory at Yorktown um, uh, uh, with soldiers, uh, groups of soldiers sent south and that was initiated, that movement of soldiers was initiated when Ar Washington sends Lafayette after Arnold uh, in the, the winter and spring of 1781. And, and so I'd like to end by reading a few paragraphs from the epilogue that speak to uh, the effect of Arnold's treason on uh, uh, the American sense of themselves as, as, a, as a nation. The United States had been created through an act of disloyalty. No matter how eloquently the Declaration of Independence had attempted to justify the American rebellion, residual guilt hovered over the circumstances of the country's founding. Arnold changed all that by threatening to destroy the newly created republic through, ironically, his own betrayal, Arnold gave this nation of traitors the greatest of gifts, a myth of creation. The American people had come to revere George Washington, but a hero alone was not sufficient to bring them together. Now they had the despised villain, Benedict Arnold. They knew both what they were fighting for and against. The story of America's genesis could finally move beyond the break with the mother country and start to focus on the process by which 13 former colonies could become a nation. As Arnold had demonstrated, the real enemy was not Great Britain, but those Americans who sought to undercut their fellow citizens' commitment to one another. Whether it was Joseph Reed's willingness to promote his state's interests at the expense of what was best for the country as a whole, or Arnold's decision to sell his loyalty to the highest bidder, the greatest danger to America's future came from self-serving opportunism masquerading as patriotism. At this fragile stage in the country's development, a way had to be found to strengthen rather than destroy the existing framework of government. The Continental Congress was far from perfect, but it offered a start to what could one day be a great nation. 
By turning traitor, Arnold had alerted the American people to how close they had all come to betraying the revolution by putting their own interests ahead of their newborn countries. Already, the name Benedict Arnold was becoming a byword for that most hateful of crimes, treason against the people of the United States. Thank you very much. <laughs>